Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today we're digging further into mental health and mental health provision in Western Australia with retired clinical psychologist Bill Saunders. Born in England, Bill came to WA to work at Curtin Uni in 1987. During his distinguished career, Bill has focused on drug and alcohol dependency. He has held a number of notable positions, including Director and Head of Psychotherapy at Abbotsford Private Hospital, um, Consultant Clinical Psychologist at Naola Private Hospital, and Clinical Director at Greylands Hospital. His stated goal for the next three to five years is to, are to retire ungracefully. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bryn. Cool. So um, you, like myself, originally born in England. What was the appeal of coming to Western Australia? Was it purely the job or? No, no, look, there, there really wasn't one, which was quite interesting because I'd been working in Glasgow and I suddenly out of the blue got an invitation from what was then Wait to come out and be a visiting fellow and teach about addictions uh, in what was then Wait. And I thought, great, you know, this is great. I'll, have a, I'll, have, I'll be a visiting fellow and that's, you know, coming to Australia where I'd never been. So I hopped on a plane and I actually forgotten, of course, that June, July and August are actually winter. So I came out of Glasgow where it had rained nonstop, but it was just becoming summer. And I ended up in probably one of the wettest winters ever, 1985. And I found Perth extraordinarily boring. After Glasgow, it was miserable. What I did enjoy, though, was working at what was then wait because it was... It was open, says me. I mean, Wait was trying to go somewhere. There was lots of enthusiasm. And after a more conservative university in Glasgow University, it was suddenly great fun to be in a place which was the Wild West in terms of uh, tertiary education. So I did three months, went back to Britain, and I just went back and it was September and it rained for another year. I mean, it was just extraordinary. So after 18 months of rain, um, Wait phoned me up, which was becoming Curtin, and said, do you want a job? And I thought, I do not want to go back to that most boring place in the world. However, it continued to rain. And so I thought, ah, oh, fuck, I'll do a couple of years out there. So I signed a three-year contract and turned up and became head of addiction studies and associate professor in psychology at what had just become Curtin University. And it was great fun. Uh, again, it still had that great sense of optimism. We had a great time. We created new courses. We introduced addiction studies. And I had some excellent colleagues. And I just loved my three years. And then three years became, ooh, I think I did 12 at Curtin in the end uh, before I suddenly realized that being an academic had become not so interesting. And then I went back to Britain and worked in clinical practice. Um, but I had got married here and I did have kids here. But when we went back to Britain, my relationship with my then wife deteriorated. It was, it was one of those things you do. You think, look, we're not getting on well, so let's go to a place we don't know. And so we can really be together. And then that will make the relationship better. It didn't. It all <laughs> the flaws in the relationship, which by drifting apart, apart, we had managed to cover over, became very evident when we lived in Jersey in the Channel Islands, which was a very small place. Yes. And we knew no one. So we were suddenly pushed back together again and it didn't work. Right. So in the end, my wife uh, graciously returned to, uh, 
Australia, and then uh, a year later I returned back here and went into private practice. So in some ways my sojourn into Western Australia was a bit accidental, and it was really to avoid the reign of Glasgow than it was for any excessive pull to come to what I must say now I find is a delightful place to live. But I think it's very different when you're in your late 60s than when you're in your mid-30s. And I think the sort of things that were the place you'd like to live. I mean, I'm very fortunate as I live right by the beach and every day I go for a walk along the beach. So, look, um, so for me now, Western Australia is home and it's a delightful place to live. Uh, And with the fringe and the festival, there's Mm. lots to do. Mm. So it really has transformed itself in the last 30 years. um, And I'm very pleased that... uh, the rain and the winter of Glasgow made me go, I need some sunshine. Yeah. You think you'll see our, your retirement here? Oh, absolutely. Look, we, we might have a sojourn or two back in England. My wife is from Jersey in the Channel Islands. My now wife is in the uh, from Jersey in the Channel Islands. So we go back very frequently, and I'm still a Portsmouth supporter for my pains, and I love soccer yes. uh, and can't abide AFL. So there's always the pull to go back and see some real sport. Right. So what was the original um, draw and pull towards being studying psychology and being a psychologist? Well, actually, that's, quite, that's very straightforward. My father was a police officer and a senior police officer, and he believed in black and white. And growing up around somebody who believes in black and white, you actually get enormously frustrated because my father could not see grey. And I knew I'd won when, at the age of 18, he said to me, what are you studying at university? I said, psychology. And he said, what fucking use is that? And I knew... <laughs> With triumph that I'd chosen the right subject. And, just to piss uh, your dad off. Huh? Just to piss your dad off. <laughs> Absolutely. But also the world is grey and I knew the world was grey and I knew it wasn't black and white and I knew, you know, concepts like right and wrong and the law, which he totally believed in um, almost demonically, that he was wrong. All right. You know, the law is wrong. You know, at the time, well, I mean, it's interesting. When I first came to Western Australia, I couldn't believe it. When I came as a visiting fellow, I went to play poker with a few lads I'd sort of become friendly with in the Northbridge pub and we got thrown out because gambling was illegal. So gambling was illegal. Homosexuality was illegal. Prostitution was illegal. Drugs were illegal. There's only one of them left. And that's drugs are still illegal. Right. But that too will change, of course, because prohibitions on people's desires and appetites never works. Right. That's interesting. Can you expand on that a bit more? Well, look, you know, it wouldn't it be lovely if we made the drugs that are really bad for you illegal and we and so therefore nobody used them. And we believe that by making things illegal, people don't do it. Well, there's a folly in the first mm. place. Um, and we make the drugs which are safe legal. Now, if you did that, if you had a league table of the drugs that were safe, Top of the list would have to be ecstasy, uh, followed closely by cannabis, followed by LSD. Oh, hang on, they're all illegal. Mm. The drugs you'd have totally at the top of a harm list would be nicotine, alcohol, and pharmaceutical products, uh, particularly benzodiazepines Mm. um, and antidepressants. Hang on, they're legal. It's nonsense. So, so, So the drug laws have no, they're not about safety. They're about racism. So the drugs of the first world, alcohol, nicotine, pharmaceutical products, are legal. The drugs of the third world, coca, uh, opium, and cannabis, are illegal. So all the drug laws are about is we don't like you black, yellow, South American people using drugs. So our white drugs are great. Your 
funny, coloured drugs are shocking. So we make the drugs of the third world illegal. And we, whilst we force feed our drugs, tobacco, alcohol and pharmaceutical products all over the world. Yes. So it's got nothing to do with any sane decision to make the bad drugs illegal and the good ones legal. And as we know, prohibition of alcohol in America, totally funded crime, and the illegal drug industry today is worth billions of dollars. And we would all make the world a much safer place if we legalized the lot. So I am absolutely persuaded my father would love this. I'm yes. absolutely persuaded that every 18-year-old should sit a frequent fryer test. And when they pass their pharmaceutical or pharmacology, psychopharmacology knowledge about all the drugs that they can get their hands on, they get a driving license. They actually get a, a license which they can take to an ATM in a pharmacy. And they can get cannabis, cocaine, magic mushrooms, morphine, librium, largactyl in very limited doses, and we know exactly who's using. We charge appropriate prices. All the money would go back into the health system and instantly you'd do away with police corruption, you'd empty your prisons, and you'd take away all the money from the bikey gangs and everywhere else. It would actually be a, a very simple solution to what now is a completely useless response to drug use. And we need to be very clear, for those people who believe in law enforcement, one of the delightful things I did, we I was working in Jersey as a director of the Alcohol and Drug Clinical Service, and we knew roughly in consultation with King's College London, we usually knew roughly how many heroin users there were in the island. And we also could predict, given this is the average heroin user who uses this amount per day, we could estimate, estimate the amount of heroin that was being consumed in the Isle of Jersey. Right. And then we looked at police seizures, police and custom seizures. And the percentage seized by law enforcement, Bryn, take a guess, what do you think it was? Probably more than was on the island. Sorry? More than on the island? No, 1%. Right. They law enforcement, all the huge amount of money that's poured into law enforcement seizes less than one percent of the available drugs that are in the community. So every time you see the police with all their with all their braid on and their feet standing on polythene bags of drugs going, we have made a major interruption into the supply of the scourge in our society. Mm. Just ask them two weeks later what has happened to the price. The price remains the same. Why? Because they've just taken out 1% of the supply, at best. So the way to measure the success that, of the police is not how much they seize, but the price of the drugs on the street. And if you look at the price of methamphetamine in Western Australia, despite kilos of seizures this year, the price is going down, which means there's more supply because drugs are like anything else, and it doesn't matter whether it's bananas, cauliflowers, apple, or methamphetamine. If you've got an oversupply, the price comes down. If you've got an undersupply, the price goes up. And the price of methamphetamine is consistently creeping downwards. Law enforcement, to be honest, if, if you spent two-thirds of the money on law enforcement on public health and proper uh, treatment services, you would make a huge impact. And the, the truth of the matter is for every dollar spent on law enforcement, you get back about 20 cents. For every dollar spent on in intervention, you get back about $5. So our drug laws are a nonsense. Our drug policies are a nonsense. And they actually criminalize victims because the truth of the matter is lots of people do drugs, right? In fact, I hate to say this, but human beings love doing drugs. So from the very beginnings of time, people have drunk naturally occurring alcohol. They have used opium, 
coca, cannabis, cat. They have chewed things that have got them intoxicated, out of their heads, pissed, pissed, whatever. So human beings from the very beginning times have used mood-altering substance, most of them which occur naturally, and those that occur naturally can be improved on by chemists. So alcohol gets turned into spirits, coca gets turned into cocaine and then into crack. So, you know, you can always improve on what nature provides. But the truth of the matter is you can't go to any country anywhere in the world and not find embedded into the daily fabric of, uh, of that community some form of mood alteration. Now, the interesting thing about this is kids, we used to do lots of funny things like roll down hills, go on swings. I had this special game I used to play with my twin sister where we had three steps outside our house, a little terraced house in Portsmouth, and I would stand on the top step. She would stand on the bottom step. I would lift her up under her ribs and hang on to her for about a minute. And then when I let her go, she couldn't, she couldn't breathe during this time and she collapsed to the ground, go slightly blue and burst out laughing. She <laughs> thought that getting slightly unconscious was an amazing endeavor. And that's what this is all about. Humans have a natural appetite and children in play do it uh, to, to change our, our consciousness. So what happens, of course, when we are adults, we change our consciousness. Now we can do that by going to the movies, right? And you end up in a trance-like state by going to the movies. You can also do it on a Friday night by going for what, a 10K run or climb a mountain or go abseiling or go to your local pub or get some ecstasy or whatever. And the thing about alcohol, ecstasy, cannabis and cocaine is they just work so much better than a 10K run for instant mood alteration. So all human beings do drugs. So the interesting thing is if, if, Everyone does drugs. What sort of percentage of drug users become dependent? Well, that's an interesting question because the answer is not very many. So out of every 100 people who use alcohol, about 10% become dependent on alcohol. 90% don't. Of every 100 people who use cannabis, about 5% become dependent. 95% don't. Of every 100 people who use ecstasy, 1% at worst become dependent. 99% don't. Uh, if you take something like heroin, for every 100 people who use heroin, about 20% become dependent. Methamphetamine, phew, the figure's a bit in, in dispute, but it's somewhere between 10 and 15%. Cocaine, about 10%. So overwhelmingly, people who use mood-altering substances, and most of us do that, right? And in fact, whenever I teach, I ask the, the, the room I'm in, I get them to fill in the drugs they've used, and I've yet to teach any group that hasn't used everything. So the, the prevalence of drug use is almost universal. Everybody has done something, some done not just legal drugs, some illegal drugs. So then you've got a really interesting question is, why don't people become dependent? If overwhelmingly people don't begin to, why don't they become dependent? And the answer is they don't need to. Because they use drugs from the motive of improving an evening. Ecstasy will improve your night out, particularly on a first date, because you'll all talk quite happily and chattily to each other and you'll be less anxious. Uh, alcohol. I mean, can you ever imagine going out socially with a new group of people or an old group of people and not drinking? People just don't do it. Why? Because alcohol works. It makes you, it's a social lubricant. It's just delightful. So if you use your drugs for fun, you don't become dependent. The people who become dependent are using drugs not for fun, but for psychological solace. And if you use drugs for psychological solace to make you feel better, particularly about yourself, there is the hook.
because suddenly you have found something, usually in your adolescence, late teens and early 20s, which makes you feel as though you're okay. And if you spend lots of time not feeling okay, if you've had a really poor childhood, if you've been neglected, or if you've been abused physically or sexually, then substances soothe. So your sense of shame, your sense of not being enough, your sense of being different, your sense of being odd, are soothed and removed by substances in the short term. But of course, next day, you want to do it again. So the hook, the addiction is not in the drug. There's no such thing as the world's most addictive drug or any drug can be used well and wisely. Right. Any, drugs can be, any drug can be used disastrously. Dependence lies in the interaction and the motive for use between the user and the thing they're dependent on. And what happens if your motive is to soothe yourself psychologically, you will get trapped. Mm. So the trick of management of people who are dependent is to see beyond the substance and actually deal with the underlying psychological issues. Unfortunately, a lot of our treatment services get focused in on the drug and they talk about abstinence and 12-step programs, and they, I'm afraid they ignore the underlying trauma and pathology. And unless you manage that, you know, it's, you know, everyone goes around, yes, alcoholism is a relapsing condition. Well, only if you just make people sober and you don't deal with the underlying issues. If you deal with the underlying issues and you need psychotherapy to do that, if you use good psychotherapy, then people will walk away and they will not need to use drugs to soothe. And I've forgotten what the question was, Bryn. It was. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why become a psychologist? Oh, why become a psychologist? Well, actually... Partly it was my father, but there was also something else that was very funny. I became a clinical psychologist completely by accident. Yes. Right? And what happened was I was working in Bermuda. Uh, I'd finished on my first degree. I did a joint degree in psychology and sociology, and I had an honors degree, and I didn't know what to do next. So I, I, spent, a, uh, I spent a year in Bermuda being a salesman, uh, selling pharmaceutical products of all things, and I hated Quite it. Quite ironic. It was ironic. <laughs> I hated it. And so I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to go back to university. I think after you do an honours degree, you never want to go near a university degree. Well, I didn't. True. So I phoned up a friend and I said, look, this clinical psychology caper, what's it about? And he said, oh, I don't know. You better talk to a, a mate of mine. So I said, who's your mate? And he said, Gordon Claridge. And I said, who's Gordon Claridge? And he said, oh, he's a professor or something at Glasgow University. He said, ring him up, and which wasn't easy actually from Bermuda in those days, where it was 1971. So I phoned up Gordon Claridge at Glasgow University. I said, Gordon, look, my name's Bill Saunders, and I'm really interested in clinical psychology, perhaps. Can I come and chat to you about it? So he said, yeah, when are you coming to Britain? I said, well, actually, I'm going to be in England at Christmas. And he said, okay, well, why not pop up to Glasgow and come and have a chat with me? So I said, yeah, what time? He said, 9.30 on, you know, about three days before Christmas. So I fly up to Glasgow, and Glasgow at Christmas is just amazing. I mean, it was Grim, having come from Bermuda, which was bright and sunny, this weather thing is repetitive, isn't yes. it? It was just bleak, but Glasgow as a city was superb. It is just vibrant. It is very funny. It is so irreverent. It was everything my childhood wasn't. So there was a, mm. there was something scary about Glasgow, but there was also something very vibrant about Glasgow. So I make my way out to the Southern General Hospital and I'm sitting in the waiting room and eventually I'm summoned and I go in and see Gordon Claridge and he's got his mate sitting there. And I go, morning, boys. And they go, oh, hello, Mr. Saunders. And I go, yeah, look, about this clinical psychology caper. Tell me about it. Now, what about this? What about that? What's our role with psychiatry? What do clinical psychologists really do? This was 1971, so behaviour therapy was just starting. 
the role of psychiatry and clinical psychology. Clinical psychology had been a handmaiden to psychiatry during the 50s and during the wars. So, you know, what was our role? The rest of it? So we had a ding-dong battle of an argument for an hour. And I got to the end and I thought, oh, maybe I might want to do this clinical psychology thing. Maybe I need to apply. Anyway, Gordon says to me, can you just sit, sit outside, Bill? I go, sure. So I sit outside and I thought, that's a bit weird. I'm going for coffee with my then girlfriend. And he goes, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. It's been very interesting talking to you. We'll offer you a place on our course. He thought I'd come for an interview. And I hadn't. Right. And so I got into Glasgow University and I never filled in an application form. Brilliant. And out of 200 people who applied that year, eight of us got in. <laughs> so my, my career of clinical psychology was a complete accident. And I don't normally tell them that story because I have sat on the other side of the table as being head of clinical psychology, interviewing students, thinking, shit, if this was me, I wouldn't get in, <laughs> right? Because the students, I mean, the level, the, 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 the difficulty of getting into clinical psychology these days is ridiculous. You know, you have to have almost a first-class honours degree. You have to have experience. You have to have research experience. I feel sorry for anyone who applies for clinical psychology these days because it's totally underfunded. The provision of clinical psychology in this country is totally underfunded. We are losing more psychologists than we are making. Right. Right. And so people like me are retiring. And so that wave of people who were trained largely in Britain post-war are now retiring. And the universities have not had the funding to replace not just the ones who are leaving, but to actually meet the population demand. And so currently in Australia, we're about 5,000 uh, psychologists short. So if you can get into the discipline, it's ideal because you can always run a private practice and make money. Mm. Because the demand for psychology and psychotherapy far outstrips the supply of psychologists. There you go. Yeah. So I want to go back to the okay. um, the bit you were talking about just previously about uh, different drugs and getting them reclassified, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Listening to you, it makes perfect sense. Well, it is perfect sense. It is. Executing that. Oh, almost impossible. Because the drug debate is not a logical debate. It's a moral debate. Yes. Right? And we can all feel sorry for poor old Bonking Barnaby. I mean, overwhelmingly, people in long-term relationships are unfaithful. But Bonking Barnaby, Joyce, has actually, you know, got caught out. And look at the moral opprobrium. And yet the moral opprobrium for him is doing what 70% of men in long-term relationships do. They go and have sex with somebody else. <laughs> you know, he's perfectly normal. His behavior is not that heinous. But he is in a moral debate, and so is the drug debate. The drug debate is a moral debate. On the left-hand end of this debate, you've got the pharmacological Calvinists who believe desperately that any use of any mood-altering substance is a sin and must be punished. Then you've got the medical morbidity managers who believe, well, no, you can use mood-altering substances such as heroin, morphine, whatever, but not for pleasure. Only for the release of pain. And that pain has to be physical. It can't be psychological. So you're allowed morphine for pain, but you're not allowed morphine for pleasure. All right? So we're really hard on the morphine for pleasure people. We lock them up. So that's a moral debate. It's a moral attitude. I mean, look how bizarre it is. I worked in Glasgow. I worked in the hospice in Glasgow. I was a very young clinical psychologist. And in Glasgow, if you're dying and the morphine no longer works and keeps the pain down, you can have heroin. And heroin, the hero drug, that's where the name comes from, because it was better than morphine. It has better pain-relieving qualities than morphine. And actually, for most people, it doesn't make them as sick, as nauseous. 
So in Australia, if you're dying and you're on morphine and you break through the pain relief of morphine, you are not allowed heroin because John Howard determined you might enjoy it. You might enjoy your death. You might enjoy your death. How bizarre is that? So we cannot use heroin in any way for fun, despite probably as a drug. If you ever wanted to wrap yourself up in a cocoon of bliss, I recommend heroin. Right? You can try morphine, but heroin is better. It's quicker. It's faster. It's safer. Heroin is non-toxic to the human body. Alcohol is extraordinarily toxic to the human body. Heroin is non-toxic to the human body. And... How lovely is it to wrap yourself up in a little cocoon of bliss where nothing touches you, particularly if you've been sexually abused, particularly if you've been neglected as children, particularly if you've had a shit childhood, particularly if you're depressed. Becoming dependent on heroin could make very good sense. But if you do, you will go to jail. So we actually punish the victims because the big guys very, very seldom get caught. So it's, it, it's the, the big it's, guys being the dealers. Yeah, the big guys being, being the really big dealers. Of course, we have to have really big dealers because, of course, we made it illegal. So the state can't control the supply. So the bikies do or the Chinese drug gangs do. And we heave millions of dollars to them to spend without tax. It's just bizarre. So. The difficulty is, I mean, if you ever wanted to be all you can be, and when I first came to Western Australia, there was this very funny advert from the health department, health promotion, be all you can be. And it had all these pretty people running around the river going, be all you can be. And they were all slim and good looking, and they were being all they can be by running. I don't dispute that. I've run a few marathons, but it was bizarre, I think. I tell you, if you really want to be all you can be, if you really want to absolutely find out how brilliantly wonderful magnificence you are, methamphetamine is the drug. Marvellous. You have a hit of methamphetamine and you will be all you can be. If you ever want to feel 10 foot tall, bulletproof and very funny, and you want to chat up the most attractive person in the room, dexamphetamine, methamphetamine, whatever will do the trick. Be all you can be. Take drugs. Now, you can't go around saying that because people get terribly upset because this is a moral story. It's not a factual story. So we've got the pharmacological Calvinists. We've got the medical morbidity managers. And then we've got this group of utilitarians who basically go, come on, guys, this is my camp. Drugs are like cars. Cars are really dangerous. Cars are smelly. Cars pollute. Cars take up acres of space. Cars are really a pain. But they're very, very useful. So let's make our cars as safe as we can. So we have roll cages, we have seat belts, we have uh, adaptive cruise control. We have made cars stunningly safe. In fact, they're so stunningly safe, they're actually increasingly dangerous because you get, you get there's a collusion between the car and you that you can do 150 and it's safe, which it really isn't. I once heard that the best uh, road accident prevention uh, strategy would to put on each steering wheel a great big spike, very sharp spike, which actually rests against your chest. And it comes out of the steering wheel and rests against your chest. So you know if you hit anything, you're dead. Everyone would slow down. But I, I, I probably better not recommend that. The, the point here is, though, so the utilitarians believe, let's make our drugs as safe as possible. Let's manufacture them. Let's supply them legally. Let's make sure that everybody knows exactly what they're taking so we won't have any more stupid deaths at raves because people or concerts because people take the wrong substance in the wrong amounts and they don't know what they're taking. But heaven forbid we should have drug testing at, um, at, at, at concerts. What would that say? We mustn't give the wrong messages about drugs. Uh, What's the wrong messages about drugs? Well, I think the wrong message is that they're illegal, that they actually, you know, you can use once and die. 
we know that the carnage from drug use, 98% of all harm from drug use comes from alcohol and nicotine. Maybe we should make them illegal. Um, but it won't work. And it didn't in America because prohibition of people's appetites doesn't. And then the other lot, left is the far right group who actually are the sort of psychotropic hedonists and they believe a day not wasted is a day wasted. So they don't do, they're not very good for the argument that you should use drugs well and wisely. Look, it was very funny. I, I ran into this moral debate um, on an occasion in the mid nineties where myself and another postgraduate student at Curtin wrote a very funny very clever in my view, but that's my view, but yeah. it's very funny, very clever. The user's guide to the galaxy, how to use any drug well and wisely. And we had really sensible advice with lots of pretty pictures on three page in the student union's magazine called Grok. I mean, they phoned me up and said, would you write something? I said, sure, of course. And it was great fun writing it uh, with this other student who was a, a experienced drug user. And uh, I have never got into so much trouble. It was as though I said the Pope wasn't a Catholic, birds don't shit in woods. It was remarkable. And it was astonishing to see the opprobrium I ran into from writing sensible, real news about drugs. Mm. And in fact, the police, the police commissioner at the time came out saying, we have filth coming out of our universities in technicolor. Now, that's why... The drug debate is never a sensible one. It's a moral debate, and people take moral positions. And the trouble with moral positions, poor old Barnaby Joyce, and I'm not forgiving him for what he did, but poor old Barnaby Joyce, I mean, he's run into all this thing about an un being an unfit human being, whereas, in fact, all he's being is human. Mm. And I think we need to get away, if we can, from a moral debate and move into a scientific debate. That is extremely difficult in the drug world. Because even the people doing research into drugs, they actually get polluted by it too. Because they know that if I, they say things like drug use is fine, anyone can use yeah. drugs, it's not an issue. And then what we need to do is focus on the victims. Not, and what we need to do is drug prevention is not have silly exercises, a drug education in schools, which just does not work. What we need to do, we, we need to make sure that every child has a good childhood. Because people have nice childhoods do not become dependent on drugs. So we don't need any drug education. We don't need drug interventions of the preventive sort. What we need is to make sure people's childhoods are better. And when, when I was the director of the Alcohol and Drug Service in Jersey, I actually wrote the annual, I wrote the three-year strategy, which was nothing about drugs, and it was all about trauma, neglect in children in schools and having really early identification, social workers in schools, even in kindergarten. So when kids started to behave badly or act out badly, there were interventions, there were, there were parental interventions, there was support given to the most vulnerable kids. Now, unfortunately, I didn't stay there long enough to realize the fruits of that, but I suspect only some of it occurred because it's not politically popular to argue that. Right. What they want is action, and what they want, and what the police wanted was a larger boat they could drive around the island in, uh, so they could arrest criminals who right. were bringing drugs into the island. Uh, yeah, they were successful; they intercepted one percent. Um, so, you've got this real moral debate in the drug world, you know. And if it, if if you believe that drug use is sin, then you're going to punish the sinners, whereas drug use is normal. Hmm. All of us use mood altering substances, actually. 
That's not true. About 1% of people in Australia use no mood-altering mood substances at all. They don't even use coffee. Mm. Now, I think they're really, really odd, and I'm sure with the appropriate treatment, we could give them a helping hand to be a bit more normal, and we could probably get them using caffeine occasionally. Mm. Is there also an element to this about having sovereignty over your own body? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we, look, we allow people to have money. Yes. And, and, and the most dangerous thing we allow them to have is relationships with each other. And, and 60% of all murders are done by lovers and ex-lovers. Right. And we allow them to actually even now allow them to have sex with the same sex. Oh, my goodness me. And the world was going to fall apart if we allowed people who wanted to have sex with the same gender as themselves. We thought the world would come to an end. But that was a moral debate. And we've just seen the ridiculousness of the moral debate over uh, the same sex laws. And thank goodness we've got there. The issue here is we need the same debate about drug use. And to be honest, the world, the sky's not going to fall down if we decriminalized everything. In fact, I'd legalized a lot. But, and we'd make money. And not only that, everyone, it's very funny because you hear the tourist people go, oh, yeah, we need, we need longer licensing hours in Rotto. And you get Bradley Woods, Bradley Woods from the hotel station say, alcohol is really good for it because it keeps lots of people employed. If you want employment, legalise cannabis. If you want tourists, legalise cannabis. Ever been to Amsterdam? Amsterdam has a huge tourist trade, which goes there purely to go to the coffee shops. And, you know, they're remarkable places. You walk in, you're greeted nicely. They offer you a range of, of cannabis menus. What would you like, sir? He looked at me and went, well, you're a bit old. Are you all right doing this? I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. Don't worry. And he said, I think we'll get something mild for you. And so we get a joint and it cost five euros for the joint, but five euros for the uh, lighter to light it, which I thought was very funny. I yeah. think it shows you the value, you know. So for 10 euros, we got a joint and we go up in this lovely building and there's coffee and tea and some alcohol on one floor. And upside, they've got this movie going, right? And it's the funniest thing in the world because I walk upstairs and I'm sitting there and they've got this movie, but everyone's got their 3D glasses on. So I'm looking at lots of people with 3D. The only seat I have was looking at the audience. So I, there's about a hundred people with these 3D <laughs> glasses on and it's hilarious. I'm sitting there. And my wife says to me, are we going to light this or are we just going to hang on to it? No, no, sure. So we lit up our joint. We have our joint. And after about 10 minutes, I am totally fixated on all these people with their little 3D <laughs> glasses on. I'm not watching the movie behind me. But I'm absolutely enthralled by the reflection off of all the color glow. And my wife said, I'm getting very hungry. Shall we go downstairs and get something to eat? I said, I'd love to. But I don't think I can move. Right? <laughs> and it was enormously difficult. To actually stand up, walk downstairs, get something to eat. And I remember that I decided I needed some fresh air. So I went outside and got completely lost, right? And actually, my daughter was there as well. And after about an hour, which was probably 10 minutes, my daughter comes and says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm completely lost. I don't even know where I am. Where's the hotel? She said, Dad, you're standing by the front door of the hotel. And I said, mm, this cannabis stuff is marvellous, isn't it? Isn't it fantastic? And she said, it's great fun. Let's do it again tomorrow. Um, and that, you know, and nobody came to any harm. It was a great event. It was very funny. It's, yeah, cannabis is not for me. I'm not a cannabis user. But to do it legally, to have fun, it was just like going to a pub, but safer because there was no violence. There was no people shouting and yelling. The police didn't have to turn up ever. 
Right. Yeah. So if you want to have violence, if you want to have accident emergencies full of people, make alcohol legal, make it available all day long, and make it very, very cheap. One of the most interesting places to go to is Oslo, where you see no public drunkenness. You walk into a pub, it's quiet. You go to a restaurant, it's savoury. You come out at midnight, you can walk down any street in Oslo. Why? Because a bottle of wine costs $200. Why? Because a pint of beer costs you $60. Expensive alcohol is very safe alcohol. But suggest that to the Australian government and all the evidence is raising the price of alcohol works causes total conniptions because the moral people get out and say, you mustn't restrict us. You are actually harming our capacity to have fun as we wish. You are trying to gain sovereignty over our Not drug right. use. Yeah. And you go, but hang on, guys, you're the people who argue the exact opposite about cannabis, cocaine and magic mushrooms. What is it about drink that turns everybody into being... Um, violent, etc. Like you, you well, said, I, I think it, not it, it, it's not in the drink. That's... Actually, it's not in the drink. The interesting thing about alcohol is it's not in the drink. I, I used to do some guest visits to the shoe, which is the special handling unit in Casuarina, and I loved doing it because you got all the most violent offenders, and they're <laughs> they're, they're really good. If you ever want to see personality disorder in action, you go to the shoe. And I used to have this exercise where I used to people are not stopped because they are good. So we are not law-abiding because we are good. We are law-abiding because we think we're going to get caught. So one's perception of the likelihood of getting caught is a deterrence. So people with very high and probably wrong perceptions of getting caught behave themselves, right? However, if you have a very low perception of getting caught, particularly if you've done it lots of times and got away with it, you're more likely to engage in crime. So I always have this exercise when I used to work in the shoe about saying, there's $250,000 in a house next door. You can go in there and steal it because it's illegal money. Uh, however, you've got a one in a thousand chance of getting caught. So you've got 10 or 12 uh, violent offenders in the room. And they all put their hands up, yeah, we'll do the crime. And you slowly reduce it. And you reduce it and you reduce it. And you say, you've got a one in 50 chance. By the time you say one in 50, you get a couple of more of the more sensible ones put their hands down. And then you go, you got a one in 20, you got a one in five, you got a one in two. By the time you get to one in two, you've got a couple of people with their hands up. And then you go, it's definite, one in one, it's 100% certain that if you steal the money, you will get caught. And there's always one inmate who puts his hand up. And you go, what's that about? And he said, and, and, and he said quote, unquote, you can't go past an opportunity. <laughs> so that absolute sense of no consequence is, is just startling. And I, I'm very taken by a deterrence model because people say you need harsher punishments. No, you don't. Harsher punishments don't work. They just clog up our jails for longer. <laughs> what you need is certainty of detection, right? If, if, if Barnaby Joyce knew the day he first had sex with his uh, staffer that he was going to get caught that day, he had never done it. Mm. So deterrence theory tells us it's not the punishment that matters. It's your sense of how much you're going to get caught. And that's true of illegal drug users. Now, I know that the number of phone calls I need to make to get cocaine or cannabis or magic mushrooms, and I'm 104 years old, so I'm not the typical drug user, but I know I only need to make one phone call. And when you do a study, and we've done this study, that's the same for everybody. So illegal, making drugs illegal does not remove them from the marketplace. It ensures they're in the marketplace. And what is fascinating is, 
I would bet all your listeners that they can all go, oh, yeah, I'd only have to make one phone call. Right. And some people don't have to do that. They just have to walk next door. Um, so the notion that the law protects us both from our human appetites and from access to drugs is complete nonsense. What stops access to drugs is making them expensive because drugs like any other commodity, Rolls Royces are more expensive than Mazdas. And there is a lot more Mazdas than there are Rolls Royces. So if you put the price of the drugs and if you control the supply of drugs within reason, you're going to get a much better safety record. If the state supplied the drugs and took the profit and we all knew exactly who was using what, because on your frequent fryer card that you put into the ATM in the chemist, your name is on there, your address is on there. And if you fuck about and go over your daily limit, ching, your card doesn't come back. Right. So you would know when people were being excessive. And you see, we actually do do this because we actually prescribe methadone to people. And when I worked in Glasgow, we actually had a prescribing clinic. Where we, we prescribed heroin, where we prescribed methadone, we prescribed um, cocaine, we prescribed speed. <coughs> and the good thing about that was we lowered the crime rate. But then Mrs. Thatcher came along and didn't like it, and it all got banned. So one day we had a drug supply clinic, and the next day it was all gone. And we had to do abstinence, just say no. Doesn't go down well in a city like Glasgow. So the number of armed robberies went up. It's so simple, really. And yet, to get the moral, to get those people who believe drug use is sin and we can only use drugs for physical pain, to get them to change their minds is really, really difficult. Hmm. Hmm. I'm interested in um, you uh, talked about the fact that for most of us, it would be almost like exploratory. Yes. Um, and then for some, it's covering over wounds. Yeah. Et cetera, et yeah. cetera. Um, you know, from doing a bit of reading myself and, and looking around, um, there seems to be an over prevalence of prescribing people on pharmacological uh, Prozac and, and things oh, like yes. that. Um, is there like a middle ground there between people who have like very clear sort of childhood trauma and those who just haven't quite developed the resilience for life and then that's getting covered over. Okay. There's a beautiful study done by Harvard University. It's 1972 and Harvard University invited 500 eight-month-old babies to come into their laboratories and they videotaped them. Now, eight-month-old babies can't come on their own, so they came with mum. So they videotaped for 20 minutes mum interacting with her child. And they said to mum as she arrived, thank you, Mrs. So-and-so, for coming along today. Just go into the next room with your lovely little daughter, Charlotte, and just be exactly as you are with her. We're not interested in you. We're interested in what little Charlotte can do. Psychologists lie. That's completely untrue. They already knew what eight-month babies could do because all the toys were age-appropriate. What they were interested in was the mother-child interaction, particularly in terms of maternal warmth, uh, attachment, and attunement. Attunement is how much is mum tuned in to the needs of the child. And they videotaped these um, 500. And so they had 500 videotapes of mums interacting with their eight-month-old babies. And they sent them off to Duke University for analysis. So completely independent analysis. And their results came back. 6% of mums were brilliant, excellent. They were attuned. They were attached. They were very warm. 80% were okay. So they ranged from good to good enough. And then down the end, you had 10% who were really very, very poor. Now, most of those 10% just put little Charlotte on the ground, looked out the window and smoked a cigarette, as you could do in those days, and completely ignored the baby. 
And it, interesting, but eight months old, the baby didn't even mind. The baby just sat still on the floor because the baby by eight months old was already used to be neglected. There were a few who yelled at their children and, mm. and did things like, you know, you're the worst thing that ever happened to me. I don't know why I had you. Your father's run away that you have ruined my life. So there was a, there was a bit of that, but not much. And one, even, one or two even hit their children. So it's amazing what people do when they forget they're being videotaped. That data was then stored for 34 years. Four years later, Harvard University got in contact with 472 of the 500 eight-month-old babies and said, come and talk to us. You were part of a study 34 years ago. So all these 35-year-olds turned up and filled in something called the SCL90, which is the Symptom Checklist 90, which is it measures anxiety, depression, uh, alcohol and drug dependence, aggression, uh, psychosis, and so on. So it's a, it, it's a full, broad-spectrum uh, psychological uh, checklist, you know, of well, basically, how fucked in the head are you test? What was fascinating was, as you came down the line to where the mums were very poor, the rate of mental health issues started to rocket. So the truth of this is, the poorer you're, by eight months old, the best prediction of mental health as an adult is the quality of your relationship with your mum when you were eight months old. And it was blatantly clear. So there's two messages of this is. One is next time round, choose your mum much more carefully. And the other is what we see in presentations of mental health are the quality of your childhoods. Now, these childhood varied. So the ones with whom mums who were excellent or very good, these kids had resilience, right? They knew they were valuable. They knew they were loved. They confronted the world from a different place. Whereas when you came down the other end where you had been neglected, you were much more likely to be vulnerable because life events, and they measured life events, and life events were the same across the board. It just means that if you get a great mum, you're resilient and you can manage life better. Now, we also, you could also see that the rates of alcohol and drug dependence went up hugely down the, the wrong end, so to speak. Right, yeah. So the, those, the, the, the poorer the quality of your parenting, then the more likely you are to have mental health problems as an adult. And it's got nothing to do with your biology. So the notion, you see, there's what happened, and it happened in the 70s in Britain and America and here, there was a sudden... A flurry of discovery of new psychotropics. So you suddenly got, you got the first antidepressant in the 50s, 1952, Nardil. Then you got Largactyl in the late 60s, which was the first antipsychotic. But they were outliers. And then suddenly in the late 60s, early 70s, you started to get tricyclic antidepressants. You started getting other antipsychotics like Largactyl. And psychiatry as a discipline shot into a biological cul-de-sac. In fact, when I was at Glasgow University Just teaching... Quickly, what's yeah. the difference between psychology and psychiatry? Oh, the difference is quite straightforward. Psychologists spend six years studying human behavior, and psychiatrists spend six years studying medicine, and then do two years of psychiatry. Right. Uh, with practice placements and others, it, it can stretch out to four. But... So what happens is 
Psychologists study normal people and then make judgments about what's abnormal from a statistical base. A psychiatrist determines what's abnormal by diagnosis. Now, the problem with psychiatric diagnosis, there are 291 of them in DSM-5. Hmm. There's not a single blood test for any of them. Right. There's no hard endpoints for any diagnosis in psychiatry. So every diagnosis in psychiatry is an opinion. And the interrate reliability between psychiatrists is below 40%. Right. So whether you've got bipolar, people come along to me, I've got bipolar. How do you know that? Oh, the doctor told me yesterday. And I said, well, what about the previous 20 years? Oh, no, no one mentioned it. Right. There's a study between Glasgow, London and New York about schizophrenia, which you would think, you know, it's, it's a major mental illness in inverted commas. You'd think they get schizophrenia, right? The interrate reliability of diagnosis of schizophrenia is less than 40%. There are no hard endpoints. If you go along to the doctor and he takes a blood test and your PSA score's high, he goes, oh, you've got prostate cancer. We'll treat it like this, right? Or I've got a friend today who's unfortunately just been diagnosed with having some metastasis from a melanoma in his brain. And what they've done, they've taken, they DNA'd the, uh, the metastases in, from this melanoma and they've got a direct drug which deals with that DNA-type melanoma. Perfect. Diagnosis by science. In psychiatry, it's diagnosis by committee and guesswork. And the interesting thing is, what's the point of diagnosis if you only got three or four treatments? You've got 291 diagnoses. And how, how many psych treatments do psychiatrists have? Well, they went up this biological cul-de-sac in the 1970s, yeah. and they've never come out of it. So basically, psychiatrists now prescribe Antidepressants. Now, antidepressants aren't antidepressants. They prescribe antipsychotics. Antipsychotics aren't antipsychotics. They describe anti-anxiety drugs. Well, yes, they do actually stop your anxiety in the short term. If you go out tonight and you have sex with somebody you shouldn't, and in a week's time you're peeing and it's painful and you're bleeding and you've got pus coming out of your penis, you will take your penis off to the doctor and they will take a swab and they will diagnose what bug it is you've got and they will give you an antibiotic, antibiotic, which is specifically intended to kill off that bug. And two weeks later, you'll be peeing normally. Diagnosis and treatment. In psychiatry, they've got 291 diagnoses and four treatments. Mm. That's bizarre. And these treatments don't work because antidepressants aren't antidepressants. If you take an antibiotic, clever use by the pharmaceutical companies of language, if you take an antibiotic, it kills bugs. Antidepressants don't kill depression. No. What they do, they make you more serene. So antidepressants are not antidepressants. They're serenics. They actually make you more serene. And the trouble about becoming more serene, you can become after six to nine months so serene you don't move. And you can live in the land of blur. And also your dick won't work and you'll never have an orgasm ever again if you're female because that's what the side effects of these drugs do. They absolutely shut you down. Well, you through might not kill vivid, yourself. Huh? Through any vivid aspect of humanity. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 end up in, you end up in blood. You know, you know when old TVs used to go foot and they used to have this white line across the middle? Uh, you used to go, oh, shit, I have to buy a new TV. Well, that's life on antidepressants after two years. You're in the white line of misery, right? Because the drugs actually are highly problematic and... As the Royal College of Psychiatrists in Britain have just reported with antidepressants, not only do does everyone taking antidepressants get side effects almost immediately, 80% of people have trouble getting off them because they're dependency producing, right? Because what happens, you stop taking them, you get withdrawal symptoms. Now, withdrawal symptoms are always the opposite to the effect of the drug. So if you take a stimulant drug like speed, 
and stop it, you then feel like shit and you want to kill yourself because everything's just a burnt wasteland. If you take a depressant drug like alcohol too much, eventually what you'll get, you'll get the shakes, the sweats and whatever. So you get this rebound, which is all uh, arousal, physiological arousal. With antidepressants, which are serenic drugs, the opposite serenity is anxiety. So you stop taking your effects or your Prozac, your Cymbalta or whatever, or your Lexapro. A week later, you're feeling shit. You're all agitated. Oh, it's my depression's coming back. I need to go back on the drugs. No, actually, you need to go carefully off the drugs and you need to deal with the withdrawal aspects of these drugs. So poor old psychiatrists, and I feel sorry for them, they've got trapped into this cul-de-sac of prescribing where the drugs don't actually remove depression, they palliate it. The anti-anxiety drugs don't remove anxiety, they just palliate it. Uh, the antipsychotics don't actually stop you being psychotic, they just, they're brain-seizing drugs, so they slow your brain down. So you don't actually think as well. So you, your psychosis isn't as vivid Yes. Now, in the short term, that can be useful. In the long term, it's disastrous because you're slowing down people's brain. And we know what happens. You know, you slow down people's brains and their metabolism, and then you end up with hugely obese psychiatric patients. And so the poor old psychiatrists have got themselves up this cul-de-sac. And what is really, really interesting, there have been no new psychiatric drugs for 25 years. So all psychiatrists are left with, poor darlings, is, oh, your Effexor doesn't seem to be working. Well, of course not. You become tolerant to it after taking it. So we can raise the dose 300, 600. It's amazing some of the doses people are on, on antidepressants. I mean, they're totally off the scale. They're not even in the, in the license. And remember, no antidepressant has been licensed for children, people under 18 yet. And yet the number of eight under 18 years old on antidepressants in Western Australia is soaring. Why? And. So what these poor darlings have done, all they've got left is, is to change drugs. So you have these admissions where people are changing their meds. Now, I have never in any other discipline had, we need to admit you to change your meds. It doesn't happen with cancer. It doesn't happen with, um, you know, heart disease. You have a drug, it works, or you operate. In psychiatry, we'll bring you in and change your meds. Why? Because uh, these ones aren't working anymore. Why? Um, well, actually, you become dependent on them, so we're going to give you a slightly different antidepressant, and that will help for about six months, and then you'll become dependent on that. So in six months' time, we'll have to change your meds. And if you want to see the amount of medication people are on and the number of changes they've had and the changes of diagnosis, it's quite astonishing. Quite astonishing. Scary. And it's scary. And here are these poor old psychiatrists. They're up cold to second, nowhere to go because there's no new drugs. There is. A drug company. Now, there's lots of drug companies all trying to find new psychiatric meds. And there's one particularly that is trying, has, has got a new anti-anxiety drug. And so far, phase one and phase two trials, so it's as good as lorazepam. Now, lorazepam is effective. Unfortunately, everyone using lorazepam becomes dependent on it. And then you get withdrawal effects from lorazepam and it doesn't cure any anxiety. But if this drug happens to work, that drug company will explode. I won't tell you the name of the drug company. It's actually an Australian one. But if their drug trial, if their third drug trial is successful, Everybody in that who owns shares in that company will become enormously successful because every psychiatrist will prescribe that drug and it'll be the new wonder drug. I wonder what it's going to do. Great. Yeah. And we'll go right around and in five years time, everyone will de be dependent on that drug. And they're even saying at the moment, it, oh, this is a non-dependent producing uh, anti-anxiety drug. Well, hang on guys. If it works, if the people who are 
tearing themselves apart with their shame and with their sense of not being good enough, take a drug where they feel benign and they feel okay about themselves, they're going to keep on using it and then they'll become dependent. So for those in the, like from the Harvard study who yeah. were down the bottom end, yes. yeah. um, if we can now, if we can now, if, if based on what you're saying, we can predict that if the, the sort of the future of your resilience is, is related to the quality of your uh, relationship with your mother, um, that sounds extraordinarily deterministic, which I get on one level. So well, what do it's we... It's not as deterministic as biology. Mm. Because the notion, I mean, you know, there is in medicine the notion that biology is destiny, right? And I think the lovely thing about this is, look, my mother was shocking, right? I feel very sorry for my mum. She was 38 when she had me and I was a twin and she was expecting one child yeah. and she already had two children who were 10 and 7. So she never expected. It was one of those probably a bonk on a Wednesday morning that they didn't really mean to have and she was, wasn't expecting to get pregnant and then suddenly she's pregnant. She doesn't like to get rid of it. It's 1950s bloody Britain. So you couldn't get rid of it even if you wanted to. So suddenly she's 39 years old and she's got twins. She was totally overwhelmed. So my childhood was one of prolonged neglect. My mother just didn't look after us. She just disappeared. So I had hours on my own, or with my twin sister. And I have to say, probably what kept me going was my twin sister. Mm. I mean, we would be put out in the garden, in the snow, in a pram, because fresh air was good for us, and we'd have to sit and look at each other for hours. Right, So the sheer boredom of my childhood was enormous. And I, I can remember doing things like just running away from home for stimulation. And my mother didn't even notice. When I was three months old, I actually drowned because my mother fell asleep on the beach and the tide came in and I went out to sea. And it was only my big sister coming back from a swim who found this nappy. And she pulled the nappy out of the water and found me in it. And I was resuscitated by a passing stranger on the beach. Now, that sort of stuff impacts on you. Yes. Right. So that neglect, I've got a patient who said to me, she said, it wasn't the sexual abuse that was the problem. It was the endless gray days of neglect that drove me crazy. Now, I know the neglect of my childhood has had a huge impact on me in terms of self-reliant. I am totally self-reliant. I've got a test. I've got the self-reliance test, which is how long does it take you when you're in Bunnings to ask for help when you can't find something? People like me, we walk around for hours because asking for help, what was the point? If you asked for help as, as a child, nothing happened. There was no one to ask for help, or if you didn't ask for help, you didn't get any. So you learn to sort everything out yourself. And it's really funny because in my career, I've made all the decisions myself. I mean, it's been quite remarkable. I do not seek counsel from other people when I have a decision to make. And it's really interesting how self-reliant I am. And my now wife rails at that because what she wants is mutual independence and is me being highly self-reliant. So I make decisions. I think we're going to do this, and I do it. And then she just, and I go, sorry, who are you? Right? And I go, oh, yeah, you're my wife. I'm supposed to involve you in my decision-making. But if you grow up in a beautiful family, of course you'll make decisions and you'll love mutual interdependence. Right? So... I know my neglect has been a double-edged sword for me because, A, what neglect tells you is you don't matter, right? You don't matter. That's what neglect tells you. You're just not important. So there was always on the one side of this double-edged sword was this shiny bit which made me determined as a university student, particularly as a postgraduate student, I'm going to make my mark. 
And I worked very hard at making my mark. So by the time I was 28, I was working for WHO. By the time I was 29, I was the uh, inaugural director of a teaching and research unit in Glasgow. And by the time I was 35, I was an associate professor in psychology at Curtin. You know, that was a very fast trajectory, but I was determined to make my mark. But at what cost? Well, the cost was that, you know, my children now will say to me, Dad, you know, it would have been nice if you'd been around. They're quite cross with me that I'm now around and they're grown up and I wasn't around when they were children. (laughs) I go, but Dad, we're all busy now. You know, it's the catch in the, was it the catch in the cradle type thing, the cat in the cradle and, yeah. the, you know, his, his son's grown up just like me. And I go, fuck. Yeah. I'm just, you know, and, and I regret now that I didn't put more, spend more time with my children, but I was too busy mattering, even though I didn't matter. I mean, the, the, yeah. you know, for me, mattering was very important. And if I don't matter, if I get a message from anyone that I don't matter, woof, watch out. Uh, I, you know, I, I get enraged and we know. That, yeah, anger is a normal human emotion. Mm. Rage isn't. Rage is a mark of trauma. So trauma breeds rage. So if you have a partner or a friend or a lover or a mother who's rageful, they've been traumatized. Because basically in rage, you go from calm to rageful in nanoseconds, right? And there's lots of interesting brain studies now that shows exactly what happens, that you've got three brains and it's your reptilian brain, a very old part of your brain comes right back from the beginnings of humankind, that reptilian brain, which goes, fuck you. And literally, you lose control. Um, So there's a number of celebrated moments, which I will not repeat during my uh, 20s, 30s and 40s, where I've lost my temper with people. And each one the marker was that they didn't pay me the attention I thought I deserved and they didn't listen to me. I didn't matter. So the wounds of childhood come right through into your adult life. Now, the lovely thing about psychotherapy is you can change that. Mm. You can repair that. So good psychotherapy, and there's a recent meta-analysis of using drugs, doing CBT, doing different types of psychotherapy. And if you do psychotherapy, some psychoanalytical psychotherapy, not only will you get better, so you'll get back to baseline, you'll actually be 50% better again. So good psychotherapy will make you a better human being. If you take drugs, the best you can expect is a 30% uh, percent, uh, reduction in your symptomatology, but you won't get better hmm. because they don't cure. So, so drugs are not curative, psychotherapy is. So the lovely thing about being a psychotherapist, and I still dabble one day a week, the lovely thing about being a psychotherapist is what we do is curative. And I have seen people totally change. I have seen people who were the worst uh, methamphetamine user in the world, and now she's a delightful paddleboarding grandmother, right? I have seen somebody who was a shocking heroin user and sex worker who has now got a PhD and is an acclaimed psychologist, right? So I know that psychotherapy works. The evidence says that psychotherapy works. The evidence shows that psychopharmacology doesn't work. Huh? Your experience. Well, I experience, but also the evidence does. So, so even, uh, the APS, the uh, American Psychological Society, recently did a, a study of the effects of psychotherapy. And what they can show is that people going for psychotherapy do better than people who don't do psychotherapy. People who do specific types of psychotherapy, which, which address the issues of your childhood, do better again. And they will become better human beings. Hmm. So 
we don't need bigger prisons. We need to depopulate prison populations by decriminalizing drugs. But also we need to have lots of programs which deal with the, the pain of people's childhoods. Just as on a chilling note, uh, I work quite closely with a GP who's an addiction specialist, and uh, we both had, uh, we both worked in the same hospital in Abbotsford Private Hospital. And I made him a bet one day over a beer. I said, How many people, the last 50 women we've seen with an alcohol and drug problem, how many of them do you think was sexually abused? And he said, Oh, 65%. I said, I think you're wrong. I think it's higher than that. I'll go 75%. And he said, Okay, bottle of red on it. So I went and got the last case notes from the last 50 people we'd seen. And the answer was, of the last 50 people, we had seen women who had alcohol and drug dependence. 100% of them had been neglected and sexually abused as children. And they're the people the police want to lock up for drug use. It is wrong. Mm. It is humiliating. It is, it is totally, absolutely wrong. And this is the era of John Howard, of Richard Court. We've got to be tough on drug users. No, what we need to do, we need to look beyond the substance use. We need to drop down off our moral fucking high horses. And we need to say, here is a dependent drug user. Here is somebody who's been wounded in their childhood. Let's deal with those wounds. Because the word trauma is, of course, from the Greek word wound. So we need to heal their wounds. And good psychotherapy does that. And good psychotherapists do that. And the interesting thing about Abbott's private hospital, when we were involved full time in it, it was the only private hospital in Australia that would manage people with drug problems and mental health problems. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you have a mum and or a dad or whatever, and you get neglected and you get abused as a kid, then not only will you have an alcohol and drug problem because you'll use drugs to soothe, you'll also be depressed because you'll be ashamed. You'll also be anxious because the world is a scary place and you've got trauma, right? I mean, it's very interesting for me because my mother did it again, the falling asleep on a beach and drowning thing when I was about three, and I ended up on a rubber ring three miles offshore and a fishing boat came to rescue me, right? Now, you can imagine what that was like. I was three years old. I couldn't swim, and I sat in this rubber ring clinging on for dear life going, fuck, right? Now, what is interesting for me is it doesn't matter what I do, that physiologically, I can be absolutely calm in my head. I can be thinking lovely thoughts. Between the hours of 8 a.m. every morning and about 10 a.m., I sweat. Why? Because my primitive reptilian brain is going, fuck, fuck, fuck. Where's the threat today? Now, what is fascinating is that over the last decade, there's been a huge shift in the management of trauma. So people's Neglect and trauma in childhood is now being dealt with as an issue, not just of the mind, but also of the body. So we know that the body learns and the body remembers trauma. Mm. And so what you're getting, you're getting some very interesting interventions. There's sensory motor psychotherapy, there's somatic experiencing, there's a comprehensive resource model, all of which deal with the bodily symptoms of trauma. Now, I really ought to go and do some. Mm. Right. I really ought to go and find myself a therapist. Well, there John Sarno um, studies into back pain and he came up with um, PMS. Can't remember exactly what it was, but he was essentially, he was a um, physio who yes. basically pinned 80% back ache being a yeah. trauma. The yeah. stress yeah. had moved from the ulcer yeah. into back and neck. Yeah. Look, we know. Because the body shuts down yeah. oxygen in an area. Yeah. Look, Great. I owe my life I've seen lots of patients with alcohol and drug problems and with trauma. All of them 
are physically compromised. In fact, I wrote a, a report for somebody trying to get a disability support pension, and her childhood was one of unrelenting not being good enough. So she set herself as an adult in possibly high standards. And in writing this disability disorder, you know, I wrote about here was a girl who was never good enough. And of course, what has she got? She's got chronic fatigue. She's got chronic pain. She's on high doses of um, morphine and so on. So this poor woman has never had the underlying issues addressed. And she has battled on absolutely gamely all her life. And she's now 62 and struggles to get to the front door. Right now, what a shame she wasn't psychologically managed 40 years ago. Yeah. Because if we'd done the body stuff then and done some of the self-compassion stuff, well, what is very interesting is along with this new body work, there's also a whole new dimension of self-compassion psychotherapies, which are about saying to people, you are but human. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Let's deal with this moment of suffering, right? It's all about, you know, human beings fuck up. You're not alone on your own. Barnaby Joyce, you're not on your own. Real human experience. Yeah, yeah, it's a real human. And also about being mindful to be in the moment, to actually take pleasure in what, what everyday things. I had, <laughs> this is a funny story, actually. We, we had a patient who had a meth problem, and we we were ran, we run a clinic, or ran a clinic down south. So people come into the hospital, and then they could have a month down south in this beautiful retreat where they did intense psychotherapy and of course like many drug users because he was going there that day he thought i just need one more use just to sort of set you know say goodbye yes you know it's like going to your lover and having a final fuck just to say goodbye so final you know <laughs> final goodbye bye fucks and well known so he has a final hit and he walks he came out of stood on the balcony and collapsed he fell over backwards off the balcony of our day hospital and collapsed onto the ground and uh, the ambulance came and took him away and what they discovered was that he had a tapeworm in his brain from eating. He was came from a third world country and he had a huge tapeworm in his brain, which the use of methamphetamine at that moment had stimulated and made him go unconscious. So they killed the tapeworm. So that methamphetamine use literally saved his life because the tapeworm was getting bigger and bigger and one day would have killed him. But what is interesting, he says to me, he said, Bill, I've got the answer. I go, oh, what's that? No more methamphetamine? No more tapeworms? He goes, well, that's part of the answer. I go, what's the answer? He said, the answer is every time you have a shower, you turn it on, you put your hand on it, and you think of nothing else other than the water hitting your hand. And that's all you concentrate on. You don't worry about anything. You just concentrate on the water you have. It takes my, my shower 28 seconds to get from cold to, to hot to stand in. And so for 28 seconds every day, I have 28 seconds of rest. Now, what is really interesting all the new psychotherapists are telling us that if you can get your brain into a resting state, that is soothing, and it actually helps you manage and makes you more resilient. So I practice moments of rest. It's not the same as doing nothing. Doing nothing is laying on the couch, watching air crash investigation. That's doing nothing. <laughs> rest is an activity, which I think is extremely important, which is the conscious allowing your brain to literally go into idle. Right. And so I practice moments of rest and I get my patients to practice moments of rest and I get them to do it. I, I do it at the ocean. I'll, I'll take my dog who's very old and decrepit. And by the time I got him down the beach, he's exhausted. So I lay him under the chair at Trigg and I sit on the bench at Trigg and I just breathe with the ocean. And so for five minutes, 
Me and the dog just breathe with the ocean. And I would like to say he has a sprightlier walk on the way home. That's not true, but yeah. I, I do. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of anxious people, a lot of very depressed people, they never have those moments of rest. That voice in their head berating them, telling them themselves, shit, you're not good enough. You should have done this. You should have done that. You see, and depression, right? It's not a biological event with low serotonin levels. You know, it's a lovely idea. The only is we can't measure serotonin levels in people's mm. brains. So we have no idea whether people with depression have low serotonin levels or not. The drug companies like it because they give you drugs which increase your serotonin levels yeah. and we've cured depression. No, actually, you've just made people more serene. And even while people taking antidepressants become more serene, I think what they need to practice is moments of rest because in the end of the day, depression is a prison in which you are both the pitiful prisoner and the cruel and inhumane jailer. Mm. So people, by their relationship they have with themselves, make themselves depressed. And that's part of that must try harder, must do better. I'm shameful. I'm not good enough. And it's really well, that's interesting. That's the reptilian brain. It, well, it, 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 it actually comes probably from a more emotional brain, actually. You see, we became mammals about a hundred million years ago, and that was a huge change up until then. I mean, think of, think of the commonest reptile we get, the turtles, right? So the mummy turtle comes up digs a big hole, plonks a hundred eggs in, and then pisses off. That, uh, her mothering is over. So when those reptiles come out, they wake up, they come down the beach, and everyone's out to get them. So there are sharks, there are snakes, there are birds, there are humans. And so they come down the beach going, fuck, 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 and they get in the water as fast as possible, and then a big fish comes along and eats them. So there's a 2% survival rate in turtles from every hundred mum lays, only two make it. So that's that model of nurturing. So we have a reptilian brain which goes, fuck, the world is a dangerous place, look out. But we are mammals, and mammals have literally mammalian glands, i.e. we breastfeed. So I was up in Exmouth recently, and I watched this beautiful, huge humpback whale with her baby. Right, So mum had shepherded her into the shallows they were resting, and then the guide with her said in about two or three days, mum will take her out through the reef, and off they go to uh, Antarctica. And I thought, isn't that an interesting model? Because then mum will get down there, the baby will be big enough, and the baby will swim off, having had that nurturing. So we've got a mammalian brain here which reflects the way we are nurtured. Now, it will trigger your reptilian brain when you're under attack. So it will that, that your um, amygdala will go, watch out, there's something nasty coming to get you. Now, each of our amygdalas are highly individualized by our experience of safety as a kid. So it's very interesting. I am, because of my childhood, often on high high guard, right? And there's no, I like it. Right, We were in Jerusalem recently, and it had been quite violent. It was when the stabbings were happening in Jerusalem. And my wife's shopping, and she hasn't got a care in the world. She is just going, what do you think, babe? Do you like these shoes, or what do you think? Should I get this scarf? And I'm standing right back to the wall watching for anyone with a knife. And I am thoroughly enjoying it. I am alive. I am watching. This was my childhood. Where the fuck is the next threat coming from? My wife was oblivious. She had a, you know, a benign childhood. And so... We are programmed, we are conditioned from an early age about that, how well we were nurtured. And nurturing gives you resilience. And I'll give you an example. I went to an English public school when I was 15 to finish off my education. And uh, I met a guy there called Adrian Gamer. I loved Adrian's parents. He would invite me to have lunch with them. I mean, in two years of an English public school, my parents never visited me once. 
That's, that was there was nothing abnormal in that. There was no. just neglect. It's just we don't. You're in school. We'd come see you. You know, a ridiculous idea. Anyway, so Adrian's parents used to come and visit him every other week. So you can see the difference already. Adrian's mum was delightful. She was very funny. She was very caring. She looked after Adrian. She also looked after me. She gave me money. She was lovely. And Adrian's dad was just great. And I always remember one day we went shopping in Carnaby Street because I was staying with him uh, during a, a, an Easter break, a uh, short-term, short half-term. And we'd gone into Carnaby Street. Now, Carnaby Street, 1966 was the place to go, right? Mm-hmm. So there we are in, in London. So I buy these flared grey trousers and this superb jersey. And I, we come back home. We were looking really great. Well, 1966, great. And I can remember Adrian's mum going, boys, you look superb. I, I'll phone Dad and we'll all go to the pub for dinner. So we all went to the pub dinner and they made a big fuss of them. We also got our hair done. So we had beautiful long hair. It was just superb. So we had a great day out in London and a beautiful meal and a pub that Adrian's mum and dad paid for. And it was just delightful to be valued, right? Yeah. To have a sense that you matter, that your choices are good. Six weeks later, I'm home and I put on my Carnaby Street gear, walk out into the living room and my police officer father says, what the fuck have you got on? Go and change. See the difference mm. in, in celebration versus denial? And Adrian, top boy at school, went to Cambridge, became a physician, uh, got on every committee under the sun, has recently had a knighthood for services to medicine. Every committee that anyone runs, Adrian ends up as chairperson, even if he doesn't start off as chairperson because everybody loves him. He's been married since he was 28, 29 to a, a woman who's a Swiss woman who speaks seven languages. Adrian now speaks six. They've got four children who've all gone to Oxford and Cambridge. I doubt whether his wife and his he have ever had a serious argument in their entire life. And he's just retired. And he's a wonderful human being and everyone loves him. Don't you just hate him? I mean, how easy was all of that for him? Yeah. I mean, he got it. You know, he, I think, you know, our lives are like a silo. If you start at the bottom of the silo, if you get a quarter of the way up, you've done bloody well. Adrian started at the top 99 percentile of having a wonderful mother and a wonderful father. And what did he do? He got a fucking night off. Well, of course he did because he's wonderful because he never had a calm in the war. It never dawned on him to self doubt himself. He always knew he was special. He knew he was loved. Nobody would make him angry because, you know, they're just being human. You know, all people, you know, make the wrong mistakes. And, you know, he had a grand sense of I know best because he was told all his childhood that he was super. So you need the Adrian Gamer childhood, not the Bill Saunders childhood, right. if you're really going to succeed. So what, um, so what do we, what do we do for, uh, the Bill Saunders childhood people as they go into the world. Otherwise, this just goes around in circles. Well, you see, the, the challenge is always to be a less bad parent than your own parents. Mm. So was I a better dad than my dad? Yes. But you have to be a bit sorry for my dad because he grew up in an orphanage. His dad was killed while he was in utero. Uh, his, his mother was somebody who just couldn't cope. So he'd go into the orphanage. His mum would take him home for a while. Then he'd go back to the orphanage because mum couldn't cope. So he was in that an orphanage all his life. Now, what do you learn? You're, it's 1914. That's my dad was born. And he's in an orphanage all through the First World War. What do you think you learn in an orphanage? Well, I think you learn a number of things. Be happy. Show no vulnerability. Don't get angry. Don't get sad. Don't cry. And don't be miserable. My father tried to teach me to have no emotions. Mm. But, you know, I was anxious. I liked poetry. Uh, I liked reading. I liked English. You know, he he just thought I was a 
I, I actually, I think he thought I was gay. And I think he actually thought there was something very wrong with me. And uh, I know that he couldn't connect with me. Why? Because he was trying to make me safe in a world that he'd come from. Whereas, in fact, I wasn't in his world. I was in a world where my mother was the problem, right, because of her neglect. So what do we do for the Bill Saunders of the world? Well, because I've heard you can only blame your parents for so long. It's got a shelf life, around about 29, 30. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I, I think, look. The lovely thing about Australia is that everyone can have 10 sessions of psychotherapy every year mm. and Medicare will pay. I mean, it's yes. a brilliant idea. So I would say to everybody, and I don't care how good you are, unless you're Adrian Gamer, and, and 98% of us are not, I would say that if you keep on finding yourself running into a similar problem, go and talk to somebody. Go and talk to somebody who's good at unpacking your childhood. Um, I've got a patient who reports that she is very grumpy and very anxious in the mornings. So she makes everybody's life around her uncomfortable. And she's always in a fluster and arrives at work late. So when we explored her childhood, her dad had left her mum when she was about eight or nine. Her mum collapsed. So every morning when she got up, she didn't even know if her mum was going to be alive or not. Had she killed herself during the night? So... This child, this little eight-year-old, would get up, look after mum, and mum wouldn't look after her, so she looked after mum. So going to school was a nightmare for her because as she left to go to school and she'd be in a panic because she was late and she hadn't done her lunch and she wouldn't have got things right and where was her homework. And, and so she would go to school knowing, shit, I wonder if my mum's going to be alive when I come home tonight. So going out of the house for her was enormously anxiety-provoking. So here we have, she's just... She's 45 years old, and she's still having problems. She, 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 she's still got stuck with her response in her childhood. So a bit of a joke. I got her partner to get her ready for school the night before. So now her partner helps her get ready for work the next day. And he understands. He's usually very frustrated with And he understands that when she wakes up in the morning, the world is not a bright, sunny place where you want to go and walk along the beach. It is a place full of threat. Yes. And slowly and slowly and slowly, that will ameliorate. That will get better. She will quietly come to understand that her anxiety in the mornings is a hangover from her childhood. And you know when it's a hangover from childhood, because it's when people overreact and something small happens and they blow it out of all proportion. That what's happened, that's a trauma echo. So it's something from the past mm. that has now been reignited. So it's like tearing the scab off an old wound. So when you people, didn't know it was there. Yeah, you, know, you didn't know it was there because yeah. you built, you know, you built up something over it and then something will happen and you'll react in a certain way. But I love it when patients do that because they go, I went crazy and I don't know what it's all about. I said, oh, let's play detective. We can find out what it's all about. Mm. So we have an hour of extreme curiosity and we always find out what it's about. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And what happens with that and understanding and insight is you go, oh, that's what that's about. And suddenly people are not so judgmental. So you're not just being a bad-tempered little bugger in the morning. You're actually somebody who, in the chaos of trying to look after their mother and keep her mother alive, also has to go to school, which she doesn't want to do because mum might be dead when she comes home Yeah, because she can't protect mum while she's at school. So that makes sense. And, and as soon as it makes sense to people, they can go, ah, right? And they stop overreacting to trivial things uh, that are about. 
and they slowly become calmer. Look, uh, there's no doubt about it. I have mellowed significantly over my past 25, 30 years, right? So, in fact, it was funny today. I, I walk. I've taken up walking with an old men's group. So we all shuffle along and we went for a lovely <laughs> walk today. And there were 15 old men going out for a walk. So we all talked to each other. And one of the guys said to me, he said, you're really different, aren't you? And I said, what do you mean I'm really different? He said, oh, I met you 25 years ago and you were a bad-tempered fucker. And I thought, was I really? He said, oh, yeah. He said, you were shocking. And I thought, you know, I don't think I was that bad, honest. Probably because you didn't feel like you mattered. <laughs> well, probably. But what was interesting was that, you know, he said, you're really different. And I think that's the success of psychotherapy. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a believer that all people who do psychotherapy, a psychotherapist should have psychotherapy because then you, you realize, your- yeah, yeah, I think you should do it yourself. So um, mm. I have spent some time doing it myself. And what you find from doing psychotherapy, which I find delightful, I mean, turn up and talk about it. Look, this last hour I've been delightful. I just talked about myself and, uh, and my ideas. It's just super. People have liked podcasts with me to yeah. a bit of therapy. Yeah, exactly. And I myself have been in, 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 in psychotherapy yeah. and I, I find it, I find it incredibly constructive. I'm always, I'm always got this, um, slightly militant view that it is, it, 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 it's imperative that we spend an amount of time in nearly every day considering what goes on in the inner world because it's the outer world yeah. that's going to cop it if you don't. Absolutely. And. Look, I think one of the nice things about being retired is I now have time to reflect a bit. Hmm. And, you know, sitting at the, on the bench at Trig Beach watching the ocean come in now, yeah, yeah. you know, when I was working, I didn't have time to do that. Yeah. Fuck that. You know, Jesus Christ, you know, let's have some tea and, you know, get ready for tomorrow. Um, so I think it is luxurious to have the space to actually be reflective. And it's quite interesting. And here's a tip. Never, ever discuss your childhood with your siblings, because every sibling's experience of childhood is different to the other one. And the last time I spoke to, I've got three sisters. Uh, so there was, um, there was grandma, mum and dad, three ugly sisters and poor little me. And the last time I spoke to my three ugly sisters, we had a ferocious row about our childhoods because I just innocently said, or maybe not quite so innocently because I knew it would cause trouble. I just said, <laughs> You know, mum really wasn't very good. She really was very neglectful, wasn't she? Wow. The Pope's not Catholic. The f- my big sister went off her face and starts telling me how good mum had been. And I said, yes, I think she was for you. You were the firstborn. She had energy. You were the first child. I'm sure she was very good for you, right? And she wasn't working and she paid you a lot of attention. So then the second one starts and goes, mum was, mum was Mother Teresa and dad was a saint. And I'm going, sorry, who are we talking about here? Right. And again, I thought, yeah, dad probably was better with you because he was only a junior police officer then. He wasn't a commissioner of police. He had fewer demands. Da, da, da. And he probably did spend more time with you. And mum was easier with you. And because they were actually better as an item. By the time we got born, my parents' relationship was pretty tatty. And I think us arriving made it tattier. So there were lots of messages about, oh, the kids are the twins have ruined our lives. They've made us poor or the rest of it. And, you know, it'd been better if they weren't here. That, I mean, that was a, it, it wasn't overt, but it was a covert message. And I think it's right. I, I, you know, I think yeah. it was a terrible Wednesday morning bonk and she, my mum should never have done it. Yeah. Um, and, 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 but then I wouldn't be here. Um, the, so my experience of childhood was hugely different 
from my two older sisters who did get the best of my parents. But not only that, they were different from my twin sister. So even though we, I've got a twin sister, her experience of her childhood was different from mine. Why? Because she was a girl and the sisters looked after her. But they were cross with me because they thought the boy was going to get more attention. And when I meet with them, I get the message that you were the spoiled one. Well, Bill was always spoiled. I thought, in which wasteland of neglect was, did spoiling happen? And it's very interesting. My big sister right, had a nickname for me from Bill and Ben, the flower pot men, which was a popular BBC yeah. TV program for kids. And there was Bill and they were flower pots and Ben, but there was also a character called little weed and little weed was a weed. That was my nickname yeah. from my three sisters. They called me, Oh, here's little weed. They'd laugh. But can you imagine what that's like? You're five years old and you'd be calling a little weed. And I was weedy. Well, I'm not a real bloke. I'm a psychologist. You know, I don't blow up things and make bridges and I can't fix anything. So I am a weed. But to have that message of, hello, little weed. 40 years after that, I'm 45. I've been working for the United Nations. I've just flown into London. It's before Christmas. I walk into my sister's house in London. As I walk in the door, she goes, oh, hello, little weed. <laughs> to me. For me to go in there and kill her was extraordinarily strong, right? And I wanted to say, you, you fucking whatever. And I went, hello, Ma. And it doesn't, and that's why it's no point in having a discussion with your siblings about the nature of childhood because every child's experience mm. of childhood is different. And it's a complete waste of time having the debate. But what you need to do is realize your own childhood in the context of the family. And always, always remember that families of origin mm. are optional. So as you grow up, you can leave them behind. And it's funny because my, fa my family ended up living in Bermuda right now. If you drill a hole out of Perth, you come out the other side of the world, Bermuda. Yeah. I could not have got further away from my family of origin if I tried. And I didn't even realize I'd done it. Yeah. Right which is absolutely fascinating. And it took me 10 years to realize that my selection of a job at Curtin University way back in the 80s was probably unconsciously motivated by the desire to escape the last uh, tendrils of my child of origin. Hmm. Fascinating. What was the best day in the job? Ever. Yeah. One interesting question. Ooh, look, there's been lots of them. There's been lots of best days. I mean, the, the, the lovely thing about working in Glasgow is that it's funny. So I look back to my years as working as a clinical psychologist in Glasgow, working in an asylum with great glee. I mean, it was so much fun. And we were very much a team, and it was just very funny. I know there's psychotherapy being funny, but it was funny. And we were the young bloods because there was about four young psychologists and we all vied with each other to be the best one and the psychiatrists were good fun because the psychiatrists then in the 70s were all psychotherapists. They'd all trained in psychotherapy and they, they didn't have any drugs to use, so they were all psychotherapists. So you can actually have a, a serious conversation with them. So that was all good fun. Um, I, think, I, I, I think the best days were... And suddenly realizing I had a voice and I could say things that mattered 
and that I would get invited to conferences. I would do keynote speeches. I would get invited to write books and chapters in books. I suddenly realized that what I had to say mattered. And I, from mm. my childhood, that was very important. Um, I also like the fact that people view me as a bit of a maverick. I mean, clinical psychology as a profession is terribly dull. You know, you walk into a room of clinical psychologists and you go, oh, fuck's sake, you know, what, who, who are all so these people? So they're not all like you? No, they're not. All oh, right. Uh, you know, probably fortunately. But, <clears throat> I've but, seen a whole line of no other guests coming up. <laughs> no, no. no, no. And, and so I, I, I think I like my sense of irreverence. I like my it, – it's interesting what my colleagues worry about because I just don't. And in some ways, look, I ended up being a director of a private hospital. What we ended up doing, I had a mate who was a GP and I had this psychiatrist colleague and my mate, the GP, said, Bill, there's this old psychiatric hospital. Do you want to buy it? I burst out laughing. I said, yeah, with what, John? And he goes, no, no, we could buy it. It's going to be great. And I said, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's it's it's, it's deadbeat. It's broke. It can't make money. He said, but we can make it make money. Come on, you, me, and a couple of others, the lads, we can have a go at this. So I thought, that's nah, never going to happen. So anyway, we all ended up at his house one night way back, just before the great financial crisis. And he said, okay, I need five of you to be in. You all need to put in this amount of money, and then we can buy this hospital. And there were 10 of us in the room. We went around the room. And by the time he got to me, I was last. I was sitting next to him. And he had four people. And he looked at me <laughs> with pleading in his eyes, and here was a man I really respected, and he was a medic. I was in a room. Now, remember my childhood? I was in a room of doctors, psychiatrists, GPs, and little Bill, whose father was a police officer who always saluted anyone who was more higher up the social, mm. the English social class than him. So suddenly, I was an equal player with the big boys. And I'd gone along that night and I said to my wife before I left, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not investing it. I don't care what John says. I'm not going to do it. It's going to be a disaster. And the words came out of my mouth and he looked at me. He said, Bill. And I went very calmly, I'm in. As the words came out of my mouth, I wanted to grab hold of them and <laughs> stuff them back down my throat. But I knew it was not about the business deal. It was about being able to play with the big boys. That was a very magic moment, right? Because... Suddenly, I was the equal to people who'd all I've been told all my life was superior to me. And you know that English class system? Yes. It is. So, I mean, Australia doesn't really, Australia has a money class system. It doesn't have a, a social class system like we grew up in. So suddenly, I, I, I shed my shackles of my childhood and the, 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 the notion that there are people who are inherently better and better than you are because they're further up the social class. And I went home that night and I said to my wife, I said, she said, how'd it go? I said, I've just pledged to put every cent we have and a hundred thousand we don't into the hospital. And she went, Oh, I thought you said you weren't going to do that. And I said, yes, I did say I wasn't going to do that. She said, but you were overcome in the moment. I said, absolutely. She said, oh, I suppose we can live on baked beans. And we took that hospital, which was totally broke. Uh, we ran it for 18 months. We got it working. So I became the head of psychotherapy. John was the managing director and Steve Proud became the uh, clinical director. And we ran that hospital for 18 months. And then we had another night of red wine and decision making. Did we knock it all down? Because the health department said your hospital is so decrepit, you have to either build a new one or we'll shut you down. So we went, should we build 18 townhouses on this block of land in Leederville or should we build a new psychiatric hospital? The new psychiatric hospital will cost $10 million, which we have to borrow. Hmm. 
but we can have 18 townhouses. And it was very interesting because the psychiatrist said, I didn't get into this business to build townhouses. I got in this business to make the best psychiatric hospital in Perth. And I went, oh, fuck, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) And I joined the big boys again and we borrowed $10 million. That's an extraordinary day going to the bank and signing signing on the dotted line for $13 million. And literally, I mean, we're all guarantors. None of us, we wouldn't have had, I doubt if we had $5 million between us. And I was certainly the poorest of the boys. Um, And I think we turned Abbotsford Private Hospital into the, it has to be one of the best psychiatric hospitals in Perth. And 18 months ago, some wise men from the East came along and said, we want to buy your hospital. And we went, thank you. So not only did we create something good, we actually made a profit. Nice. And there's something in that which has been the best day of my life. Yeah. So there's something very, particularly from my childhood, which was poor, to mm. actually end up being successful. Mm. What, was some of, what was one of the darkest days during the career? Ah. Uh, the darkest day of my career. Ooh, that's very interesting. There's been a couple of them, and they both involve not getting jobs I thought I could do. And the first one was when I was 34 5, I applied to be deputy head of the Applied Social Studies Department where I was working. And the professor chose a time-serving bureaucrat, a dull man. And I went, how could you choose him over me? This is ridiculous. I quit and came to Australia. And then there was a moment, a curtain, where I went, okay, it's time for me to become a professor. I was an associate professor. time to be a professor. And the head of the department said, it's never going to happen over my dead body. He said, you're too outspoken. I don't like you. I said, but I, universities are supposed to be articulate places. He said, we don't like your articulation. And I suddenly thought, ah, ideas, we're not allowed public speech. We're supposed to toe the party line that all drugs are bad and that we must just say no. I thought, bugger this, I'm out of here. And then I went and worked in Jersey. So they were, but you know what the funny was, the thing about the dark days were they were very good decisions in retrospect Mm. because I think... You know, the way, the way to run a career is to realize when you're winning and push. And then when you realize that you're, you, you know, you're, you're no longer flavor of the month and you're a bit uh, on the nose or your, your face doesn't really fit, is to walk away with your head how high. Um, and I think I did that. But the, both leaving Curtin and leaving uh, Scotland were both, they had an element of painfulness in, in them. Yeah. Because there's something I was being told I don't matter. Mm. Right. Or I wasn't good enough. That. If you could go back to the um, point when you've graduated from university and you're going to go out, well, actually, when you finish with your academia part and you're going to go out and become a practicing psychologist yes. and, and move forward, if you could go back and give that bill a piece of advice, what would it be? Very clever question. Um, I think I would give that bill the advice of, Probably believe in psychotherapy more. I mean, I did, but I didn't, right? I mean, because remember, this is 1970, so the evidence about psychotherapy mm-hmm. wasn't as robust. Well, it was hardly, it was not robust at all. So there was a degree of doubt about 
the role of clinical psychology. I mean, now psychology is everywhere. You know, you, I mean, you can't run a political campaign without psychologists. You can't pick a jury without psychologists. You can't plan an advertising campaign without psychologists. You, you know, psychologists are everywhere. So psychology as a discipline has totally flourished in the last, in, my, in the 50 years that I've been a psychologist. I mean, it's gone from mm. being a, a minor activity into being probably a very major activity. And nobody, I mean, you, you know, you, judges don't make decisions without psychological reports. So uh, the prestige of psychology has, has been just enormous. I mean, us little fuckers get everywhere. Right? We do. We get mm. in everywhere. So I think I would I give... De- I have a degree in it. Sorry? <laughs> I have a degree in yeah, it. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, we get everywhere. So I, um, uh, look, I, I would have given Bill the advice of trust your product more. Um, and probably be just a little bit more humble about yourself. Because I think what I did, I, I had a layer of bravado about me, which was to cover up this gnawing sense of I'm not good enough and I don't matter. Um, and I can remember, I'm 26, and I suddenly get a phone call from Geneva, and it's somebody from WHO saying, would you come and do a two-week consultancy with us? I said, sorry, who are you? And he goes, I'm from the, the office of this, that, and the other in Geneva. And I think it's a mate of mine taking the piss. I said, yeah, go fuck yourself. You're just taking the piss. So this, voice, <laughs> this guy goes, no, it really is true. Do you want to phone me back? And I said, yeah, right. So he gave me the number. And sure and behold, it was a bloke in Geneva asking me to, to come to a consultancy about alcohol and drugs and young people. And it was stunning because here I am, 26. What the fuck do I know? But I think it was part of my bravado and part of my presentation of self in my profession, which got me up there you know there's a mm. there's a bit about bullshitting which you, if you can bullshit you know if you can fake it you can make it so there's a little bit of that going on um and then it's very extraordinary you write papers and they suddenly get published and you go wow right and i over my piece in academic i was an academic for what, 20 years i mean i've got over 100 publications and you suddenly realize people read i was actually sitting in a conference in poland and the bloke next to me a complete stranger was reading one of my papers and that is weird <laughs> right, and there were there were some wonderful moments. I did quite a lot of TV uh, and stuff, so I did a number of uh, documentaries for the ABC and so on. And all of those were good fun, and I enjoyed that. Which made me unpopular with my fellow academics. They didn't like right. my slightly narcissistic, um, you know, self-aggrandizing. Fun me. <laughs> in fact, there was a professor who said when I left Kern, he said, I'm really pleased you're leaving. I said, why is that? He said, because your room is next to mine and all I hear coming from your room is laughter and people enjoying themselves. Academic is a, academia is a very serious discipline and there's no room for laughter and fun in it. And I thought, oh, fuck me. Jesus Christ, I've got it all wrong. And I, look, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think the students I taught thoroughly enjoyed my you know, irreverence about things. Mm. Um, and I still, I mean, look, I still teach and I still, I, I miss aspects of not teaching very bright people. I mean, the lovely thing about clinical psychologists, they are the cream of the cream and they are extremely bright and they are very good fun to teach. Um, and I miss that having to really use my brain to inform, educate and instruct. Uh, because now when I teach, uh, to be honest, it's relatively easy. So I was teaching medical students the other day. I mean, and I'm not being rude about medical students. They were great. But 
I can walk into a room of medical students and, you know, I don't have to even pair because the psychology I know is streets ahead. I'm, you know, as long as you're a couple of books ahead of them, but I'm streets yeah. ahead of them. And, and the same with some of the people I teach, uh, for the non-government agencies and even in the universities with psychologists. My experience now is such that it's not the same challenge as it was because there's something really scary about being, you know, 37 and teaching postgraduate students. You know, and having the sense that shit, I'm supposed to know things properly, <laughs> but great fun. Yeah. And I tell you what, there's nothing like the anxiety of preparing a workshop for making a brilliant workshop. So you know you have to perform, you know they're going to watch, you know you've got a critical audience. So you just have to be at your best. And there's, and that's the other side of neglect. You see, on the one side, the rusty side of that double-edged sword is I don't matter, but the bright side is I'm going to have to fucking matter. I'm going to prove I matter, and here I come. Mm. Super. And finally, for the person out there who's considering a career in psychology, in clinical psychology, what piece of advice would you give them? Look, the difficulty is that there, in any, so take somewhere like Curtin. Curtin will have four or 500 undergraduate students. And in the clinical psychology masters, it's got eight places. So you've got a really tight funnel. So we take scoop in at the bottom and we slowly narrow it down and you've got to have very good marks. So the people who come into clinic, who get into clinical psychology, to be honest, are over bright, over educated, over keen, over desperate, over everything. Mm. So what I would say probably, if you want to get into clean psych or counselling psych, you know, think cleverly about it. Uh, I would do my undergraduate degree, make sure you get a reasonable undergraduate degree, and then I would take myself off around the world and experience the world, right? And I would go and work for non-government agencies. I would go and work for places that you don't really want to end up working, but it's a stepping stone. So when you're 30, you can come back to a place like Curtin or any of the universities and go, I want to apply for clinical psychology. I've done this, 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 and this. And I think you need to plan to show that you are a well-rounded, mature, and determined individual. And you've got to have runs on the board. But as I said, I wouldn't have got into my own clinical psychology course. You know, if I, I, mean, I really wouldn't have done. Yeah. And uh, interviewing people is just so hard because, you know, we'd get three or 400 applications. We'd whittle down some because they were inappropriate, but you'd, you'd end up with 100 people who any of them would be good enough to get in. And then you have to, you whittle them down to 50. You interview 40 because a few will drop out and go elsewhere. So you interview 40 and you've got 10 places or eight places. It's horrible. You know, as a selector, it's horrible. Mm. So I would say to anyone applying for clean psych or postgraduate psychology, I would say very much uh, look at your options, apply everywhere. Think, even think if you, if, 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 if you can do it, even think about applying to do it privately. So you're actually a fee paying student somewhere overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a number of the American, uh, doctorates are extremely good. The D psychs are extremely good. Uh, I, I would also recommend Britain. I think if you can afford to live in Britain for three years and pay to go to university, I mean, if you can pay, you will get in as long as you've got the credentials. You have to meet the basic criteria. So I, I would be very planned and deliberate. And I wouldn't do what I did, which was to leave university, take a year out, and then go back into clinical psychology because um, I – I was very young. I was 22 when I was a baby clinical psychologist, which is very young. And I, you could see some patients going, well, you know, what the fuck do you know? Uh, but I, I have very good support from my colleagues, but there was a sense that I didn't know much. 
Um, and I think if I'd gone older, I think I would have enjoyed it even more. Uh, but, you know, I, I, look, I think it's a very interesting. Uh, I was at this big conference in the States before Christmas, and I happened to be sitting by the toilets. This is really weird. And I happened to be sitting, there's ladies and the gents. And I suddenly realized that all the men going into the gents were 50 plus. All the women going to the ladies. This was a psychotherapy conference, 5,000 people, mm. right? So clinical psychologists, social workers, whatever. But all the people going into the, 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 the female toilet were 25 to 40. In 10 years' time, there won't be a male left in the psychology disciplines. And when I started, it was a male discipline. Now, we can argue the rights and wrongs of that, but... What I would say to, to men who want to get into clinical psychology is I think you're going to become an increasingly rare species. Now, that make you, may make you very vulnerable or it may make you very isolated. Are women better psychotherapists? Well, the truth of the matter is that most people would rather see a woman than a man, which is really interesting. So 60% of men want to see women and 90% of women want to see a woman for psychotherapy. So that's probably what the, the discipline is reflecting. But there's something else which is also very, very interesting. There's absolutely no evidence that having a master's degree in psychology or having a PhD or having any qualification at all makes you a better psychotherapist. So there's no evidence for that. Right. None. Zilch. What does make a good Well, in order to be, be a super shrink, and this research has been done, the best training in the world is to have a narcissistically depressed mother, <laughs> which is really funny. But if you have a mother who you constantly have to be empathic to meet her needs, you, you, you are getting very good training about working with people mm. and your tolerance will be enormous, hopefully. That's a bit of a joke, but it works. The other thing, the, the, the research is very interesting. There's a guy called Scott Miller in uh, Chicago, and he wanted to know what made good psychotherapists. And he looked at the evidence about qualifications and couldn't find any. There's silch. There really is none. Hmm. Even though clinical psychologists claim all the time that, A, they're a scientific dif uh, discipline, and, B, they're better than everybody else. So hmm. they're either not either. They're probably not neither. They're neither a scientific discipline, or, and they're definitely not better than anybody else. That makes me very unpopular with my clinical psychologist, but there is no evidence. So what Scott Miller did, he looked, he, he got a thousand interviews of counseling sessions and he tried to analyze because each agency knows who the best therapist is. So he'd go in and he said, who is your best therapist and get their tapes and who is less good to get their tapes. And they tried to look. Couldn't find a thing, not a thing. So he spent about he spent about a quarter of a million dollars on this million dollar research project into what makes a super shrink. And he's getting a bit, he's getting a bit worried. And he accidentally gets on this plane. Well, not accidentally, he gets on this plane and he accidentally sits next to this bloke. And he says to the bloke sitting there as they're going back to Chicago, what do you do? And the guy goes, oh, I'm an editor for the Cambridge Book of Excellence. So Scott Miller goes, what? what's that about? And he goes, oh, we, we look at excellence and what makes excellence. In what sort of field, says Scott Miller? He said, oh, across the board, you know, what makes an excellent carpenter? What makes an excellent surgeon? What makes an excellent musician? What makes an excellent so Scott Miller, psychotherapist? He said, well, yeah, we haven't actually done psychotherapists, but we know the answer. Scott Miller goes, fuck, he knows the answer. Is he going to tell me? You know, and he goes, what's the answer? He said, you have to read the book, <laughs> right? So he gets out this book, the Oxford, uh, the Cambridge Book of, Cambridge University Book of Excellence, which is literally, uh, you know, 10 inches thick. Weighty term. A weighty term, yeah. And he goes, well, what is it? 
And the guy goes, practice. And Scotland goes, no, no, no. No, that can't be it. We've looked at that. It's not practice. It's not experience. It's not. He goes, no, no. It's a particular type of practice. It's practice with feedback. And Scott Miller goes, fucking hell, you're right. Because what Scott Miller has realized is that the best therapists, they do something in their therapy that what they will do when they're working with somebody, towards the end of the session, they go, how do we go today? How's the session been for you? What have I done that might not as jarred with you? What I've done that's worked for you? How has the topic been? Mm. Have we been on course today? Practice with feedback. David Half got the pianist, the Australian pianist. He's very famous. He was in the film Shine and so on. Yep. He's very interesting because I saw a documentary about him. And I just heard Scott Miller talking about practice with supervision. And I, I, I was watching this documentary on uh, a flight and there's David and, you know, he's schizoaffective. So he's a bit manic. He's very funny and he talks and he gibbers and he, you know, he plays brilliantly. And yet what I noticed all through this documentary that everywhere he's playing, he was playing across Europe, everywhere he went in the preparation for his concert, he would get someone sit in and critique his playing. So he'd have the conductor or he'd have somebody from the orchestra sit with him and go, no, David, that's a bit too fast. Don't do that. No, that's really good, David. Do this. And it's practice with feedback. So Scott Miller literally has a, a, a questionnaire, a session uh, satisfaction completion air scale, which literally has four 10-centimeter lines. And at the end of the day, you hand it to your patient and go, how did we go today? And you're supposed to get because uh, it's a 10 centimeter line. So every, yeah. every point is one score. So if you, if you're scored down here, you get naught. If you're scored at one centimeter, you get one. If you scored at 10 centimeter, you get 10. And the aim of every therapist is to get 36 out of 40. And what is really interesting, as soon as you start doing that, you realize where you're weak. And it's fascinating. People always enjoy my relationship. They enjoy the fun we have. They enjoy the, what we address, but only to a point because I go off tangent. Now, yes. I haven't done that at all today, have I? Nothing this like. <laughs> <laughs> and I am alert to the fact that when I'm working with somebody, I go off tangent now. So I'll get 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 3 out of 10, 10 out of 10. And that has made me a better psychotherapist, right? Because I now consciously stay on topic. And what Scott Miller says, that's all the training you need, is to practice with people with this questionnaire. So we can probably do away with clinical psychology, masters, PhDs, whatever. Mm. And we could have a cadre of psychotherapists who we recruit largely on the capacity for empathy. So empathy is a proven, uh, empirically proven intervention. So you could have, so what you'd look for in the ideal therapist is the capacity to be empathic and the capacity to rate themselves as they go along. And Scott Miller, just to finish with, tells this beautiful story of this woman who natural, she's got no qualifications whatsoever, but she, everyone comes back to her. And she says at the end of this session to the patient, Mr. Cordy said, how do we go today? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, good, good. Is there anything you didn't like? And he goes, well, actually, there is something. You've got a bit of a funny look. So the woman goes, what do you mean I've got a bit of a funny look? She's, well, he said, no, look, I'm, I'm sure you don't mean it, but you actually, every now and again, sort of go like this. And it looks very disapproving. So she says, how do I go? Come with me. So she marches him off to the lady's toilet. The patient stands beside her and he says, you know, and she moves her face around. He said, yeah, that's it. 
And she goes, yeah, I do feel my face doing that. Isn't that interesting? I wonder what that's about. And he said, I don't like it. She, he said, I, I, look, to be honest, he said, now we're talking about it. I really don't like it because I really feel judged. Yeah. So he goes, I'm really sorry about that. I'm going to really pay attention to that in future. So she goes home and she says to him, yeah, really weird today. I was asking this patient how we'd gone. And he said, I've got to look. He said, yes, you do. And I hate it. Stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Practice with feedback. Indeed. So have you enjoyed today? Totally. I love talking about myself. <laughs> and how have I done? Superbly. Superbly. You just let me run. Indeed. Thank you so much today, What's Bill. What's time? Uh, I don't know. Like as as he checks his Fitbit. 5.13. So we've been going for two hours. Crikey. Bill, you can cut that into various. But do you cut it into bits? What do you do? We've not finished. I'm going to say thank you very much. Thank you for being open and honest. <laughs> very nice. Thank you for job. being super open and honest and food, uh, and sharing your views with us and the listeners. It's um, been an amazing experience. Good. <laughs> Plenty to digest. And do you edit this and cut it? And no, it all comes out as well. Just as it is. Just as it is. Good luck. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>